0: Hi, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor in chief of the New Books Network, and I just wanted to tell you that the following interview originally appeared on Counterpoint with Jonathan Judakin, which is broadcast on WKNO FM. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Counterpoint. I'm Jonathan Judakin. Seventy years after the Holocaust, we're still sorting through the wreckage wrought by the Nazi plunder of not only museums and art collections, businesses and homes, but also furniture, musical instruments, and Judaica, including books and archives that document the Jewish past. Lisa Moses Leff is with me today to talk about her new book, paradoxically entitled The Archive Thief, The Man Who Salvaged French-Jewish History in the Wake of the Holocaust. Her book, part detective story, part biography, focuses on a peculiar individual, the historian Zosa Tchaikovsky. Introducing her work, Leff writes,
1: He was a pioneer in the field of French Jewish history. Tchaikovsky wrote scores of articles in the field, most on topics no one had ever researched before, and many of which are still considered indispensable even decades after they were written. Beyond his scholarly work, Tchaikovsky was also a devoted collector of French Judaica. He began his collecting in the late 1930s. Then in the aftermath of the Holocaust, racked by grief and determined to facilitate the writing of an objective history of the catastrophe, he gathered evidence of the persecution from Jewish leaders in Paris and from the wreckage of bombed out buildings in Berlin. Many Jews in France and the United States saw his collecting of those papers as a heroic effort But in time, this rescuer became a thief. Most of the documents he acquired in the 1950s, mostly pertaining to Jewish history in France since the 17th century, he stole from the
0: archives. Lisa Moses-Leff, I'm so happy to talk to you about the archive thief. Welcome. Thanks. So Lisa, Zoza Tchaikovsky is such a fascinating character, but obviously most people have never heard of him. Tell us why you wanted to tell his story.
1: It's kind of an odd choice for a historian to tell the story of a rather obscure historian. But it all goes back to when I started doing my dissertation research on a completely different topic in French Jewish history. And when I went to the archives, you know, it was completely obvious, you could not help but notice that things were missing. And when I asked around about, you know, why things that were on the list weren't in fact available, I was told this story that a respectable historian whose name I knew, whose articles were well-regarded, had stolen in all these institutions. So I went ahead and finished my dissertation, but I, I couldn't forget Tchaikovsky. And when I was done with that first book, I turned to this. And I saw it not only as an opportunity just to satisfy my curiosity, but also to bring to light something that we historians rarely talk about, which is how the archives we use were constructed in the first place.
0: So maybe you can say a little bit more about that. Like, why is it that a more general audience beyond professional historians should care about the way that archives themselves are put together and constructed?
1: One of the things that's so interesting, and this comes from archivists themselves, really, is that we tend to think of the past as just a collection of facts that we could go and look up or, you know, at this point that we could go and Google, and they would just be available to us. And we're less aware that, All of those facts are available to us because people before us went after them. And the stories about why they did that, you know, why people came to care about the past and make archives is an important part of our history that's been hidden from us. And when we see the story of Zosa Tchaikovsky and the conditions under which his archives were constructed, it's a fascinating story that involves heroes and villains and makes the archives look in a completely different way.
0: And also, it helps us to get a sense of the story about how knowledge itself doesn't just sort of come out of Google, but it's a function of the way in which it's ordered, stored, organized, made available, not made available, what the blanks are. And part of what I found so fascinating is that you really show this is partly connected to a national project, to the project of France as a country, for example, but also a national project in the sense of Jewish history. Lisa, for scholars who read your footnote, the book really impresses. You've done an enormous amount of work in these archives that we're talking about. But the way that you write this story is like a sleuth on the trail of a crime. Tell us a little bit about how you piece the story together.
1: It's funny to hear you say that there's a tremendous amount of research gone into this, which there is. But what the feeling that pushed me forward was, of course, the partiality of the source space that I was looking for. It's amazing that archives themselves, though their mission is to make the papers of the past available, they almost never make their own papers available. So researching this project was just a dogged attempt to get at anything, right? So I went to France and I poked around in archives and sat there and researched everything about the context asking over and over again, do you have anything about this guy, Zosa Tchaikovsky? And of course they didn't. What I learned was that, first of all, a thief who's any good at being a thief doesn't leave any traces. So there's no document trace in the places where he stole. And then also this interesting fact that archives don't keep their own records. So my research, the reason why it looks so dogged is simply because I spent a lot of time sitting in archives, reading about the context in which Tchaikovsky worked.
0: Part of what I found really fascinating is you would use sort of just little markings on his own work to note that out of the tens of thousands of documents ultimately that he ended up stealing and selling, you knew which were his in part by some of the traces that he left.
1: Exactly. And that's ultimately what I had to do. And the other place where there were signs were in Tchaikovsky's own articles where he footnotes pieces that were in his collection. And then you could kind of, you know, he just says the footnote would be in the author's collection. And then you kind of trace, well, where was it previously? The other place really where most of the finds came from was after day after day sitting in archives trying to research the context, archivists grew interested in me. And eventually, after a few months, they gave me things that were in their personal collections. And that's how I learned, you know, some of the biggest finds that I had were things that were handed to me by archivists themselves. That is how I figured out, pieced together what he did. What it didn't tell me was his personality, because one of the difficulties of researching someone who's a rather obscure figure, you know, rather than, say, Abraham Lincoln, is he didn't leave behind a diary or an archive. The papers that say the Zosa Shikovsky papers that are held at the Evo are really just drafts of articles. So it was very hard to get his voice, and it took a long time And a total accident to find this cache of letters that he wrote, hundreds of letters that he wrote in Yiddish to his mentors during World War II. And once I had his personality, then I had the answer to the main question that motivates the book, which is not just what did he do, but why did he do it?
0: And we're going to dig into that in a lot more detail. But why don't you start by painting a little bit of a portrait of who he was, where he came from, what his itinerary was, and then we'll explore that in more detail.
1: And also, you know, the answer to why did he do it has everything to do with the answer to your question, where is he from? Tchaikovsky was born in a small town in Poland that was majority Jewish. It was a town called Zaromb. And he was born in 1911. So by the time he was coming of age, it was the time of, you know, interwar Poland, an independent country. And Jews in his town were very, very poor. And they were leaving to go to big cities. And many of them, if they could, were emigrating abroad. After 1924, most of those immigrants went to France, and that's where Tchaikovsky went. As a 16-year-old, he made his way to rejoin a few of his older siblings who were living in Paris. And when he got there, he kind of stumbled into this world of Yiddish-speaking Jewish immigrants like himself, who by then, by the time he got there, they comprised actually half of the Jews in the city of Paris. It was kind of, you know, like uh, New York, the Lower East Side. It was a thriving Yiddish-speaking world that he fell into. And when he got there, he was very poor. He became a worker like his brothers. He worked in a factory. But he had kind of intellectual aspirations. And by 1934, even though he had no formal education, he had only gone to school until he was 15, he nonetheless emerged as a journalist writing in the Paris Yiddish press.
0: He meets Elias and Rebecca Cherikover, and these two people really changed his life because they introduced him to this larger project, the YIVO project. So tell us a little bit about YIVO and the project of the Cherikovas and why they were so influential in his life.
1: The Cherikovers were a generation older than Tchaikovsky, and they also came from Eastern Europe. And they were founding members of this institute that you mentioned, the Yiddish Scientific Institute, which was based in Vilna. YIVO owed its origins to a kind of Jewish nationalism that's a different kind of Jewish nationalism than we talk about today with Zionism. It was a kind of diaspora nationalism that sought to cultivate a Jewish elite in the places where Jews already lived and to kind of foster a modern Jewish identity. So to that end, These committed intellectuals made this institute with its base in Vilna, but branch offices in Berlin, Paris, and New York. And what they were going to do was kind of scholarly study of the Jewish people. They were going to train teachers. They were going to have publications. They were going to train kind of graduate students. They were kind of a university for a new Jewish nation. The other thing that they were interested in doing as they saw Jews modernizing was they wanted there to be a source base through which Jews could study their own past. So they created this network of what they called Zomlers or collectors, to go out and collect material that would be held in the YIVO archive so Jews could study it. So this is stuff like old songs or folk tales, but also documents. So they were also making this big archive. And the Cherkovers were the head of the historical section, So they were the ones sitting on a tremendous archive. And they actually, in the interwar years, they lived in Berlin, and they housed this archive in their apartment. And in 1933, because of the rise of the Nazis to power, they flee to Paris with their archive. And it's there in the late 1930s that Tchaikovsky meets them. And he's completely intrigued and starts hanging around at their apartment, where they've got lots of these Eastern European intellectuals working with them on doing
0: Jewish scholarship. He doesn't even finish his high school education, but he begins writing for the Yiddish press. And it's a flourishing Eastern European environment that he finds himself in in Paris. And he himself now begins to collect for YIVO. And under the Cherikovas, he begins to embark on his development as a scholar. What happened to Tchaikovsky during the Second World War?
1: Tchaikovsky was in a tough position when war broke out in September of 1939. Because like many Jewish immigrants living in Paris, he didn't have French citizenship. And this put him in a scary position. Jews in his position were very afraid of being rounded up by the police in France right, you know, right away when war broke out. So the Jewish leadership reached out to immigrant Jews and told them, if you want to really make your status regular and be safe, the only thing to do is to volunteer for the French Foreign Legion. And it's this that Tchaikovsky did in the fall of 1939. So the Cherikovs were able to secure a visa relatively early on after Germany conquers France in 1940. But Tchaikovsky's in a very different position because he was a soldier. And in June of 1940, he actually was in battle and he was gravely wounded. A bullet actually pierced him through the chest. He was lucky to have survived. It went in through his lung and came out. And he winds up in a military hospital in the fall of 1940 and winds up recuperating in this small town in southern France that, by pure coincidence, uh, the town is called Carpentras, was home to one of the oldest Jewish communities in France. So even as he is recuperating and trying worrying about his future, he's also spending his time there developing his skills in history and going around and looking for documents about the local Jewish past.
0: Does he begin to try and send those materials back to the Chericovers who are in New York? And what happens to him subsequently over the course of the war years?
1: So that's exactly what he wants to do. So Tchaikovsky's strategy for getting out is to stay in touch with his mentors, the Chericovers. They've moved to New York because YIVO has a branch office in New York, And everything he finds in Carpentras, he's sending to them. There's a tremendous amount of stuff. It's not just manuscripts. There's also a chair that he found in the synagogue. There's a Torah pointer. There's actually a Torah that he sent. All of this stuff he found in Carpentras. And it's his way of staying connected to the world that meant so much to him. Eventually, the Chericovers, they can't forget him. And they managed to procure him one of the very few visas that was being made available. And he gets out quite late in May of 1941. He's trapped along the way. His boat is intercepted. The first boat that he tried to take in May of 1941 is intercepted by the French authorities, actually, who ground them in Morocco. He's briefly interned in a Moroccan Vichy-run concentration camp. He escapes from there and then moves on to the United States, where he lands in the fall of 1941 and is kind of taken care of by the Cherokeevers. And then the Americans enter the war, right, not long after he lands. And Tchaikovsky still can't forget about the war in Europe. He's left his family behind. And he quickly signs up for the U.S. forces, which he winds up, you know, going off to basic training in January of 1943.
0: Tell us a little bit about the broader context. What's happened to Tchaikovsky's family inside of France? And then I mean, the obvious is that by 1943, the Holocaust is now full-blown. And obviously, Eastern European Jewry, those Yiddish-speaking Jews that are the larger community that Tchaikovsky seeks to be a part of, are being decimated on the ground.
1: You know, when Tchaikovsky arrives in New York in, in the fall of 1941, he knows that his brothers, that a couple of his brothers who are still in Poland and his father, who's still in Poland, he knows that they're in the Warsaw Ghetto and that they're in bad shape. He has no news from his family in Paris, and I think that this is part of his motivation for signing up for the U.S. Army. He wants to go back. He wants to find them and find out what's going on. When he's in the U.S. Army, he is attached as an interpreter to the 82nd Airborne Division. He's a paratrooper, and he actually lands the night before D-Day on you know June 6, 1944, into France. By the time he makes his way to Paris, he finds out the devastating truth, which is that All of his siblings have been murdered by the Nazis, and this includes the ones in France as well as the ones back in Poland. And this, of course, you know, the broader context that you're referring to, his family is among the 90% of Polish Jews who perished in the Holocaust, and in France, 25% of French Jews perished in the Holocaust. And of that 25%, 90% of that 25% were foreign Jews, immigrant Jews like Tchaikovsky's family.
0: If you're just tuning in, I'm Jonathan Judakin, and you're listening to CounterPoint. I'm talking to Lisa Moses Leff about her new book, The Archive Thief, The Man Who Salvaged French Jewish History in the Wake of the Holocaust. Tchaikovsky begins to send back documents, in addition to documents from Carpentras. Once back in Paris, as a US, in the U.S. military, he actually sends back a number of other documents. But what he was doing was really just a dribble in the flood of some 15 million items that the Nazis looted and that now needed to be identified, protected, and collected to be returned either to their owners or often to living Jewish communities, since so many in Central and Eastern Europe were now no more. The recent George Clooney movie, The Monuments Men, showcased some of this activity, but Lisa... Tell us a little bit about other organizations. Tell us about the Monuments Men, for those who didn't see the movie, but pan the lens a little wider, as you do in the book, and tell us about some of the state policies on restitution. For example, why were the French and the Soviets so different when it came to returning these items that had been looted by the Nazis? Tell us a little bit about the Jewish Cultural Reconstruction Project developed by the Americans, as well as the efforts of Hebrew University to gain access to some of these items.
1: As you're alluding to here, you know, when Tchaikovsky is back in Europe with the U.S. forces between June of 44 and December of 45, he's there exactly at the moment when it's becoming clear to the Allies just how vast the scope of Nazi looting had been. The Nazis had looted across Europe in Jewish art collections and Jewish homes and also Jewish libraries and archives. So Tchaikovsky is already committed, you know, from the 1930s to finding archives. And this is what he does in his spare time when he's there as a GI. You know, when he, whenever he gets a break, he goes looking around for any evidence about what Jews experienced in this war. And that includes, while he was in France, he found the papers of what's called the UGIF, which is the French Jewish organization that the Nazis established that was supposed to answer, you know, for all the Jewish organizations to the Nazis. He found those papers and sent them to YIVO. And he also, when he was in Berlin found huge runs of Nazi documents from the kind of bombed out buildings that had been the Nazi ministries. You know, he just kind of, in his spare time, again, went into these buildings and sifted through the rubble to find the documents that would tell Jewish historians what had happened to the Jews. But as you're suggesting, he's doing this in a context, and the context is American authorities, other allied authorities, that is to say Soviets and British and French authorities thinking about what to do with nazi loot because as early as january 1943 the allies had committed themselves to returning whatever loot they could find when they did this they probably weren't fully aware of what they were promising because it turned out that the nazi looting had been on a scale that had never been seen before so this was going to be an enormously expensive operation and what they had committed themselves to in 1943 was just merely doing something to mitigate the effects of Nazi looting. But all of these authorities had very different ideas about what that meant. Probably the most radical ideas about restitution were those of the French. And that's because the French, you know, still were very angry at the Germans about the loss in World War II, but also the experience of World War I, right? They thought of the Germans as big looters who come West conquering and taking stuff and they want to punish the Germans. So they not only want their stuff back, restitution, they also want reparations, which is what had happened in World War I. That is to say, if if the items that had been looted couldn't be found, they wanted the Germans to pay. The Americans were uncomfortable about this, right? They didn't want to punish the Germans. They actually saw that kind of settlement as part of the problem that led to World War II. They also had very different economic ideas, right, about how Europe should be rebuilt. And they thought, crippling Germany with reparations would make it very hard for Germany to reemerge as an economic power. So they were very reticent to do that. They wanted more limited restitutions. And then we have the Soviets, who seem to have had basically no interest in restitutions, probably because of their own ambitions in Europe after the war. So, you know, when they come in, when the Soviet forces come in, they have these, what, what are known by historians as trophy brigades, where they simply looted things, that they found, looted loot that they had found. So this is why so much art that the Nazis had looted from France winds up in the Soviet Union after the war. And these materials came to be known as the twice-looted documents art that started to be returned in the 1990s.
0: And I guess the last piece of this is just that in the nascent state of Israel, it's not a state yet, but they're also attempting to get their hands on some of this material in part because they see themselves as the living body of the Jewish people when so many Jews had been decimated in Europe. Now, after the war, Tchaikovsky marries. He begins to work at YIVO in New York, but his prickly personality and unorthodox methods now need to be curbed, leading to a temporary split from the organization, during which he really establishes himself as a scholar of French Jewry. But as he did... The once heroic collector of documents now clearly becomes the archive thief. That's the title of your book. By 1949, there were suspicions of his misdeeds in the archives. Lisa, what was he doing, and why did it take so long for the archivists to finally catch him?
1: It appears that by 49, it seems like the kind of unorthodox collecting methods that he was doing in the war, where he was just simply using his free time when he was in Europe, to go around and take things, that he never gave that up. These methods that in the wartime were excusable, understandable, and in many ways even heroic, right? Because he was saving these materials from perhaps you know just being destroyed or being looted and taken to the Soviet Union. By the time things returned to normal, this is not how we are supposed to behave in the archives. So he was going to Europe primarily for his own research. And when he was in the archives, It appeared that he talked his way into the back and simply put things into his briefcase and took them home.
0: Eventually, though, this catches up with him. Archives get onto it, and eventually, in 1961, he's caught red-handed at an archive in Strasbourg. What happened, and how did it impact him?
1: In 1961, Tchaikovsky was doing research in the public archives in Strasbourg. So there are two kinds of institutions that Tchaikovsky worked in. A lot of times he was working in private Jewish organizations or in synagogues, you know, just in the back. That's where he stole the bulk of his stuff. But in this case, when he was caught in Strasbourg, he was actually in the municipal archives, you know, which is a public archives. It's a state archives. And that day when he got caught, what he was doing was he was ripping pages out of a register, like a bound register, that had papers from the early modern period, so primarily the 18th century. And he was ripping them out when he thought the librarian wasn't looking at him and sticking them in his briefcase. In this case, the first time that he was caught red-handed, she saw him, she called the archivist, and they you know, took measures, took everything out of his briefcase, and figured out the extent of what he had done. The amazing thing about that case is, even though it's very well documented and we have the police report and eventually the trial report because he was tried, Tchaikovsky never paid for that crime because when the archivist talked to him, he took pity on him and let him go. So by the time the city decided to press charges, Tchaikovsky was back in New York and the city didn't think it was worth it to extradite him. So the only consequence was that he could never return to France, but he was able to continue stealing from the archives at institutions in the United States, which were unaware of what he had done.
0: So he's stealing this material from books in the archives, and then he's using that material as the documents that are the basis of his own publications. And then after he's done with that material, he's beginning to sell it to archives, primarily in the United States, but also in Israel. After he's no longer allowed back into France, I imagine he had still already got a lot of material to continue as a, as a scholar, but it's not the last time that he ends up getting caught. What happens to Tchaikovsky in the last part of his life?
1: Tchaikovsky dies in September of 1978, and in the 1970s, he has a tremendous scholarly output. He's pretty much done at that point with French-Jewish history. He's exhausted the stores of material that he's brought back, and he's sold that material to institutions like the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, Hebrew Union College, Brandeis University, Yeshiva University, Jewish research collections. He turns to working on American Jewish history and the history of international Jewish organizations, and he has just this tremendous output in the 1970s. And here he's using archives in New York where he lives. Well, what happened at the end of his life was in September of 1978, he was caught once again red-handed, this time at the New York Public Library, where again a female librarian working the evening shift sees him ripping documents out of a bound collection and slipping them into his briefcase. It's the exact same method. But this time the story ends quite tragically. He's caught by the police. The police arrest him outside of the library that night and lock him up in jail overnight. And it's clear what's going to happen. He's never going to be allowed back in a library because everybody knows. He's going to lose his job at YIVO. And it's the end of his career as both a historian and an archivist. And in the wake of this, he checks into a hotel in Midtown Manhattan and a few days later commits suicide.
0: When I hear you tell the story, Lisa, it, it raises the hairs on, on the back of my neck. Maybe in part because of imagining him literally ripping out these documents. Maybe it's in part because of the broader story that you've told us about his life. Shakovsky's motives were complex. And part of what I like is not only the way in which you write his story Almost as a detective novel, but the way in which you analyze his motives, you don the mantle of a forensic scientist like those folks on CSI, but your laboratory is the archives themselves. And ultimately, you give a subtle set of reasons for why he did this. What were Tchaikovsky's reasons for doing what he did?
1: And this is, of course, the question of the whole book is like, what would make a respectable historian become an archive thief? And I think in the end, there's three major kinds of motivations here. The first, and I'm sure listeners you know, hear this first and foremost, the first is just pure pathology, right? When you hear that it's the same method over and over again of this ripping and that he's doing it in such an obvious and crude way. This is someone who's driven by a certain kind of compulsion. So one of the things I'm, I was interested in is like, what are the origins of this compulsion? What would drive a person to do something so risky that's really going to endanger their professional life? You know, in addition to being incredibly immoral and damaging, right? Damaging to these documents. You know, you say hearing about him ripping documents. Any historian or any person who appreciates these papers from the past that are so precious is shocked when they hear about how this man treated these precious documents. So this pathology is something I was really interested in, and I do think it has to do with the trauma that he went through in his early life and in the war. During the war, he was treated as a heroic rescuer of Judaica by all the people he admired most. And, you know, this includes the Chericovers, but includes the wider world of Yivo, and all of those Jews in New York who were so traumatized by the war and their helplessness to help Jews And their desire in the wake of the war to at least salvage the remnants of the European Jewish past and get them out to safety. You know, you mentioned the scholars like Gershom Scholem based at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. But there were other scholars in New York who also, you know, wanted to sway the Americans in their restitution policies and managed to convince them that the Judaica that they found that had been looted by the Nazis should be brought to safer places, should not stay in Europe. And the Americans actually did this right in the aftermath of World War II. They handed over whatever documents they couldn't find original owners for to an American-based group called Jewish Cultural Reconstruction to be distributed to libraries in the United States and uh, eventually Israel as well. So that experience for Tchaikovsky of being part of that heroic effort made a huge impression on him. And when later in life, things weren't going the way he wanted, he returned to this behavior, That had once made him a hero and did it again, even though now in this context, it's anything but heroic. I mean, I think that's the very definition of pathology, right? Is doing something so completely inappropriate for its context to try to make the world whole again. But that psychological motivation is just, I think, one part of it. It's the most obvious part, I think, to listeners. But the other parts are things that I realized in my research are just as essential. His financial situation was really quite terrible in America. Here was someone who could never get an academic job. He didn't have a PhD. His English wasn't great. And he was working at a time when almost no one was teaching Jewish history within the academy. He was trying to make it as an independent scholar at a time when there really wasn't even a field to work in. So to support himself as a historian, rather than giving up altogether, he turned to this— And the returns, you know, wasn't great. He lived a very modest life and was always needing more money, but it was enough to keep him going. And then finally, one of the things I thought a lot about was how important having these documents was to him for his research. This guy was really a pioneer in doing social and economic history, and that's the kind of history you can't do just based on manuscripts at the New York Public Library. This is something for which you need a much wider net. And that's precisely what he was doing. So going into the archives and taking out all of this material that documented the lives of ordinary Jews, it's all of that stuff that he needed to see. But because he didn't have the means to pay for it, he instead simplified his research and took it home with him. I think a lot about my graduate students who go to the archives and take pictures with their iPhones or their iPads. Tchaikovsky was working in a world before photocopy. It's a certain kind of mind, it's a certain kind of pathology. But what he was doing was trying to get the documents he needed to do the kind of history he wanted to do.
0: Lisa Moses Leff, uh, Zosa Tchaikovsky's story is just absolutely fascinating, especially in the way in which you really bring him back to life. Thank you so much for sharing his story that you write about in The Archive Thief, The Man Who Salvaged French Jewish History in the Wake of the Holocaust. I really enjoyed having this conversation today on CounterPoint with you.
1: Me too, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Putting a spotlight on the role of scholars, academics, and intellectuals, and how their work illuminates the issues we face locally and globally. CounterPoint is a monthly broadcast on WKNO-FM. To listen to the show in its entirety, visit wknofm.org and click on the news menu item where you'll find a link to CounterPoint. You can podcast CounterPoint by visiting iTunes and searching for WKNO CounterPoint. CounterPoint is a production of WKNO-FM in association with the Spence L. Wilson Chair in Humanities at Rhodes College. Justin Willingham produces the show. I'm Jonathan Judakin. Thanks for listening.